Good afternoon and welcome to the 164th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a special COVID calls discussion about the pandemic, the election, and the path ahead with some excellent guests, most of whom you've met before on, on COVID calls. We have one new guest today. We'll be joined by Sherelle Barber, Billy Fleming, Cynthia Rivas, Olivia Troy, Fiona Tulip, and Kristen Urquiza. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I was very sorry yesterday not to have hosted a planned discussion on COVID-19 testing with Shobita Partha Sarathi, and we will be scheduling to bring her back. I know several people were looking forward to that discussion. She's doing really interesting research about COVID-19 testing. We'll get her back in December. As of today, November 6th, 2020, there are 1,239,896 deaths from COVID-19 globally. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, there are 9,678,326 cases of COVID-19 in the United States. And there are now a total of 235,541 deaths reported in the United States. We are at one of the most volatile points in the history of this pandemic in the United States this year. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I would like to continue that now. Headline is Calvin Atkins. 73 was a city inspector and veterans activist. This was written by Gary Miles and posted on August 16th in the Philadelphia Inquirer. If you met Calvin Atkins, it was likely you were going to have a talk with him. He would have a conversation with anyone he came across, said his son, Mark. He was very sociable, very funny, and very charismatic. If anybody had any trouble, he always took time to help. A veteran of the Army, Mr. Atkins was especially fond of visiting local veterans affairs hospitals or facilities and interacting with other vets. He liked to thank them for their service, high five them as they walked by and salute them with a smile. He especially liked to look in on those vets that were having trouble, his son said. He liked to make people feel special. Mr. Atkins, 73, died Friday, August 7th of complications due to COVID-19 at the Veteran Administration's Community Living Center in the University City section of Philadelphia. A proud graduate of Overbrook High School, Mr. Atkins made sure his son also attended Overbrook so he could experience the same sense of achievement and pride that he did. After his time in the Army, Mr. Atkins graduated from Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science, now Thomas Jefferson University. 
He worked as a city inspector for Philadelphia for 17 years and later as a notary, tax preparer, and carpet installer. The oldest of 10 children, Mr. Atkins doted on his son and nieces and nephews. He taught many of them how to drive and enjoyed their visits to the zoo. He took his son to the movies on many weekends and he always made time to play the slots and poker at local and Atlantic City casinos. Mr. Atkins and his son loved to watch Sanford and Son on TV together. Red Fox, who played Fred Sanford on the show, was his favorite actor. They also watched Eagles and Phillies games. He was so outgoing and he used humor to solve everything, his son said. Mr. Atkins, later in life, Mr. Atkins became attached to the nurses and doctors who cared for him at the VA hospital and he held a special place in his heart for Nurse Beverly, whom he called mom. He was an all around good father. Mark Atkins said. In addition to his son, Mr. Atkins is survived by former wife Barbara, seven of his nine siblings, and many nieces and nephews and other relatives. All right, really excited to have this discussion today. We're going to have a number of guests uh, dropping in throughout the hour today on COVID calls, and I see that I'm joined by Billy Fleming. Let me introduce him. Billy is research coordinator for the Ian L. McCarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania Stuart Weitzman School of Design, and most recently he co-authored The Indivisible Guide and co-created Data Refuge, an international consortium of scientists, librarians, and programmers working to preserve vital environmental data at the risk of erasure during the Trump administration. Before coming to Penn, he worked on urban policy development in the White House Domestic Policy Council in the Obama administration. Billy, it's good to see you. Welcome back to COVID Calls. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me back. What a time. What a time to be a Philadelphian, huh? Oh, I love this city, man. Um, you know, have you made it down to the convention center for anything yet this week? No, I've been doing it all remote, just like everything, it seems like. I've been doing remote. Have you? Yeah, I was down there for a little while yesterday in a dinosaur costume, like an inflatable one, which was really fun. Um, I think I saw you on TV. Probably so. <laughs> there, I mean, this is my favorite thing about like Philly protest culture is that like the costume design is like basically an off-Broadway show. Um, so, you know, I had to do my part with an old Halloween costume. That's amazing. I saw someone dressed up as City Hall, which is not as easy to carry off as you might think. It's a very tall... Uh, costume, and I think I did see a dinosaur for sure. So I guess that was you. Probably so. Yeah, there were people dressed as uh, USPS, you know, like um, whatever you want to call them, like like hat mailboxes. Um, mm -hmm. It was great. Yeah, very lively. You know, several hundred, maybe a thousand people like dancing and hanging out versus like thirteen people on the Trump side, including Corey Lewandowski. Um, so yeah, it was. I mean, you know, this was right before they announced PA had flipped, so it was a, a pretty jubilant culture. Corey Lewandowski was out there yesterday. Yeah, he and Pam Bondi showed up to do uh, like a press conference um, after they'd won their court ruling to be able to move 14 feet closer to doing pallet observation. That was their big win yesterday was to go from 20 to six feet. Um, so they had to give a press conference about that. And it, I mean, that lawsuit, I, I don't really try to understand what they were trying to do with that. I guess they were just trying to carve out a little bit of the news cycle. I mean, it was a meaningless win, wasn't it? I think it was that, and also I think while it was being considered, um, there was a there was either like a, a stay or maybe just like an informal halt of the vote counting. So they're just trying to drag it out as just long slowly. as they can. That was one way. Yeah. 
Now that seems to have been, I, I know people don't, not everybody follows this, well, hardly anybody probably follows this as closely as you do. But when you go back and put it all together, the pandemic, the decision by the administration um, that they weren't gonna do anything much about the pandemic, and then the pressure on state legislatures that were amenable to it to make it not only harder to vote, but to slow the vote count. It's, it, you know, it, when you see it all in one paragraph, it's not only is it sort of shocking, the uh, just attempt to undermine democracy, but it's really pathetic too. Yeah, I mean, it's just a really naked attempt to like, you know, claim an illegitimate victory. This is the reason that, you know, counting ballots before election day wasn't allowed in a few of these swing states where everyone knew the day of vote would favor Trump and everyone also knew that the total vote would favor Biden. Um, and this was, you know, all part of a, you know, not a stupid plan, but like a very like disgusting plan um, to be able to claim victory on election night knowing you hadn't actually won. So what does that say about the Philadelphia legislature versus say the Florida legislature? I mean, there in Florida, they, they did the count. Yeah, I mean, don't have a lot of great things to say about the PA legislature like as a whole. Um, we're lucky we have some great reps and, and state senators here in Philly um, and a few, you know, throughout the state, but they're outnumbered. So since you've been on, and it was a while ago, you were on in the springtime on COVID calls, and, and it was a kind of a sidebar at that time because uh, we were having a discussion about climate change and, and lessons about climate activism, really great discussion that day. But we didn't talk much about, about you and what you'd been through with COVID, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing that. Sure. Uh, so, gosh, um, yeah, that feels like 10 years ago now, Scott, but I'll, I'll say, you know, in December, late December, early January, um, I'd begun doing, you know, what you might call like prepping, like kind of knowing we were heading to some version of this, not knowing, you know, it was ever going to be quite this bad, but knowing like something, we we're going to be in some some version of like a quarantine or shutdown. I thought then maybe for a few months, but, you know, here we are in month eight or nine of it. Um, and, you know, getting like a fair amount of flack from um, my friends, my, my faculty colleagues, my partner. Um, for like coming home with like extra dry goods all the time. Um, and so, you know, in, and I was also doing a ton of traveling and felt like really nervous about it. Um, I was on the road a couple times a week. And so, you know, by late February, um, I think I'd taken my last trip for a little while, had moved preemptively all of my courses online, um, kind of knowing, you know, we were, this was getting out of control just before anything really was shut down um, across the country or certainly at Penn. Um, and then we went into spring break and then the week after spring break, so middle of March, uh, my partner, who's a dentist, um, uh, you know, came home with a cough, didn't think a whole lot about it because it was just allergy season. Um, and a few days later, I started getting symptoms. Um, I, at that point, had been, you know, quarantined for almost three weeks. So, like, hadn't seen anybody. So, pretty clearly, it came from, from her. Um, and, I mean, my experience, like, on whole was mild. Um, I had, like, pretty, what I would call like pretty bad um, chest tightness, difficulty breathing, um, you know, would get winded, certainly having a conversation like this, let alone like walking up and down the stairs of our row home, was just like wiped out energy wise for a few weeks um, and had like a few other, I don't know, like pretty minor physical like symptoms, but um, ultimately like felt pretty lucky because within a couple of weeks, like the respiratory symptoms had started to, to recede it still took me probably three or four months to really get like my 
to feel like I had like my lung capacity back. I run a lot and was, you know, pretty regularly in the six to eight mile range, like for like a, you know, a couple times a week run, maybe a long run would push 10 miles and I'm still not really back there. I can't really tell at this point now if it's because like the lung capacity isn't there or just because it's like cold and I don't want to go outside. Um, but I think, yeah, like my, I mean, my experience, like on the whole, like I feel pretty lucky to have had such a mild case, but even that mild case had me bedridden for, you know, almost two weeks, like pretty unable to like move around and do like anything even within the house. Um, and was like pretty scary. So scared as I've ever been health wise, never had like any major health problems, surgery, anything like that. So this is as close as I've gotten. So at the time that you were, I'm glad you're better, by the way. Thanks. And, th and thank you for sharing that, that story. And I guess I want to sort of get your perspective because in the, in that earlier period, I guess it wasn't as clear what the administration's position was going to be. They were still going through the motions. The task force was working. What did you, what did it mean to you? What did it feel like to you when by the summer it was clear that the president of the United States was downplaying your experience, was basically saying, don't worry about this. The people who've had this, it's overblown. I mean, and to the point at which on the eve of the election, basically saying doctors, nurses, and patients are lying about COVID. Yeah. I mean, it's like pretty disgusting. My partner works in, like I said, the, you know, the healthcare field. Um, and it's pretty demoralizing to have your commander in chief, like saying stuff like that about you, even when he's our commander in chief and everyone's expectations for him are basically on the floor. He somehow managed to like shimmy under that bar one, one last time before he was booted out of office. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think like for me, my expectations for like, he behaved about it as, as I expected him to. It's, it's not a great feeling to like experience that to have actually like quite a few friends and family members who also, um, you know, were tested positive for COVID and had, you know, symptoms ranging from, you know, almost none to a couple of like brief hospitalizations. Um, but I would say, you know, it's it, the, my disappointments with him were like far less compared to, folks in say like my extended family who are like very ardent uh, Trump supporters who continue to think of it, who continue to talk about it in the way he talks about it, despite not just me, like having closer family members than me um, contract a virus and like have to deal with its consequences. And I think like that, like, uh, you know, in many ways, I kind of hoped that that direct connection to someone would be like a thing that helps break the log jam that gets us to stop calling it like really xenophobic things like the Wuhan virus or whatever that he wants to call it to stop pretending like it's, you know, basically the flu to stop saying that, you know, doctors and nurses are invested in higher case counts because they get paid more per person, all of that kind of like insanity. Um, and it just wasn't like, I actually, like, I think like it was, I, I guess I'm like never surprised, but always disappointed at like the degree to which like, reality is filtered through partisan identity, even with family members who watch you like suffer through the way their, their worldview or ideology like defines, you know, the world. Is that driven a wedge in your family or is something that you just, it's hands off and you, you just move on from it? And we just, we just manage it, you know, don't, you either don't talk about it or you like, you know, have pretty surficial conversations about it. And I should say it's not my like immediate family. So no, I they're all, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been talking to a lot of people about this in my own family. There are some who um, have bought into the denial aspect. Most haven't. And 
I think even in families where it's not like yelling and screaming and throwing things at each other, where none of us are together, so we can't do that anyway, but um, there's a there's a breach there that's very hard. And I don't know how, you know, it's this kind of reconciliation, this national reconciliation that's going to be required. It's going to have to start within a lot of families, I think. I don't think it's impossible, but I think that work for a lot of people is going to be with their coworkers and their families first. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I also think, you know, if, we're, if this is, if there's ever going to be like a path forward, it's going to require in this country, like it's going to require the kind of truth and reconciliation process that South Africa went through you know, in the dismantling of apartheid, um, which like should have been like the bloodiest end to and most violent end to like a regime in, you know, at least like recent world history and wasn't, um, wasn't like without violence, but um, yeah, I mean, we're, this is, this is again, I think like much more the story about the election um, not actually being like a COVID or an economic election. It's like a COVID, it was a COVID and economic election filtered through like a white supremacist country. And like the only way out of that, I think, is through a process that um, actually allows us to like, you know, assign blame and responsibility and tell the truth and like also have like ways of dealing with that trauma and moving forward. You know, one of the things that, that I know you think a lot about in, in, in your own work is the many different issues that often get treated separately that come together in the urban in urban politics and in urban mm -hmm. economics. And I, I've been pretty disappointed with the exit polls I've seen that that seek to differentiate the economy from the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I saw one that differentiated Black Lives Matter from the pandemic, from the economy. And it's to this point you were just making, it's like, I don't understand the distinction between those things being a meaningful indicator of what we have been living through this year. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice. It would be nice if the world like worked that way. Like everything was in a neat little discrete like category or variable that we could just like manipulate and control the rest, and everything would work out the way we wanted. Um, I hope to God like people have maybe that like that mythology of like what big data and quant like methods can do has been punctured by you know what's gonna what's gonna wind up is probably like a four to six point polling miss in the U.S. Um, you know. Joe Biden might win by four and a half points. That's still at least four points off like the polling average. Mm -hmm. um, and in some states, like the, the the margin is much larger, Florida, Wisconsin being a couple of them. And so, you know, I, I think you're right. Like, I think treating these things as like discrete and maybe like loosely related, but disconnected things is like obviously a huge mistake. Um, it's not, I mean, you don't have to look very hard. You don't, I mean, to like, to find good work that's already out there in like, mainstream reputable sources about the relationship between COVID-19, um, you know, economic injustice, racial injustice, climate injustice, like these things are all like overlapping in space and in time because they're all products of the same systems that like make those things, make those communities where all of these things are overlapping into sacrifice zones. Um, and, you know, our, I think our inability to like, to grapple with that and to see those kinds of conversations dismissed by the folks who kind of rely on, um, you know, big data driven storytelling. And I say that like, I mean, we're both in academia, like not opposed to data and like learning and knowing sure. things like those are hugely important, but like building your worldview entirely around like what a data set you've cleaned and curated, like can tell you is going to lead us into lots of problematic corners like this one. So, I think it's fair. I don't want to be the guy that jinxes anything or <laughs> going to this evening, but I think if things hold the way people are expecting, we're talking about um, a Biden administration 
And um, I want to, I think I want to do a longer talk with you about that in terms of, and I talked with Andy Revkin earlier this week about what he might be looking for in terms of mm -hmm. climate and environment um, going forward. But can you give me your headlines um, in terms of thinking about putting together a Biden administration, either people or sort of top line policy things that you think could get done the first year? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what seems, so I worked on a couple of projects that were related to this pre-election. There are a bunch of different kind of progressive cabinet and sub-cabinet projects, one with Data for Progress, one with the Green New Deal Network and Nexus, and a couple others that are kind of tied up in those things, uh, where we put together lists, you know, of people, you know, options basically for Biden to build a, a climate forward, justice forward uh, cabinet. Um, and I don't want to say that work feels wasted now, but it also like the the scope of what's possible with the you know Republican controlled Senate is very different. Um, I think, I think you know most. I, I guess I shouldn't say most people. I went into the election expecting kind of one of two outcomes, which were like either a total repudiation of Trump, and by that I don't mean that like you know Joe Biden was going to win in a landslide, but he, that if he won, he would take the Senate with him, or if he lost, he would also take the Senate with him, right? So like we'd either have had. A Democratic or a Republican trifecta, or at least like a Republican president and Senate with a Democratic House. Um, I think this kind of like split decision um, complicates a lot of that work, makes the strategy going forward much harder. Because I think in the best case scenario, in a world in which we had, um, you know, a Biden White House and a, a democratically controlled Senate, um, you still probably would have had to trade someone like Elizabeth Warren, say, as Treasury Secretary where she actually would have had a ton of power to do some interesting work on climate through the levers of, you know, available to the treasury secretary. But we would have had a trade putting her there with putting someone probably pretty conservative um, at another cabinet post. And I don't know who that would be, right? But like the places where that typically happens in democratic administrations are like transportation, HUD, labor, whatever it might be. Um, and so I think like even now, I think like the prospect of putting someone like Warren at Treasury, I think the prospect of putting someone like maybe Jay Inslee at Interior or the EPA or Energy or whatever it might be um, seemed pretty dim to me. I'm happy to be surprised. Well, like you know, like everyone else, work my butt off to see, to make sure that that's possible. But that the 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 potential there seems much smaller than it was you know even a week ago. Um, and I think we're still likely to get some version of those kind of Republican uh, appoint or conservative appointments in. Um, cabinet level agencies that the administration doesn't really care about. That's where they tend to put those folks, um, which is actually a shame because a lot of those agencies are really important. Um, transportation, where you know we put Ray LaHood in, you know, in Obama's first cabinet, um, which you know did some, did some interesting stuff, didn't do nothing, but like did a lot less than it could have with a trifecta and a supermajority in the Senate. Um, and you know, I think like. I expect that's where the Biden camp will go. And I think that really curtails a lot of what's possible. And I can't blame them for it because they have to pass all those people through a Republican controlled Senate. So um, I think, you know, I have a lot of friends on the left who are getting, you know, who are really leaning into this, like we're gonna, we're gonna lean on executive power and regulatory sort of action to really like make up for what we can't do legislatively. And my hat's off to them. I think that's like one pathway we should put work into, but I've yet to see like what, what the theory of change or what the like political strategy is there because mm. we have to put it's for the right people into those agencies who actually want to pursue that aggressive of a, of a regulatory or executive agenda. It's not clear that we can, 
And then if we do manage to get them there, they have to feel like they have enough political cover to be able to do some of this stuff without being hauled in front of the, the House or the Senate for oversight hearings every other day um, or being subpoenaed you know, all the time, which, again, I don't know that they're going to feel that they do. Um, and so what I really worry about is that actually we just leave a bunch of like executive instruments or levers like on the floor um, and mm-hmm. don't pick them up uh, in the next couple of years. Um, Go ahead. Republicans have a very unfriendly Senate map in 2022. Is there, and I don't want to get too weedy with this, but is there a possibility that you, you make cabinet picks and you basically know that in the first two years you're going to be more or less sidelined for more aggressive things and then the picture changes in the Senate in 22? Yeah, I mean, that's that's like the hope, but I think for that, you know, there are lots of things that we can control that can make that more possible. Um, it's not clear that you know, with a Republican Senate, that anything that we might consider core to the Biden agenda will, that requires legislative action will be possible. I'm like struggling. I mean, I haven't spent a lot of like mental bandwidth on it because this week has been a lot, but I'm struggling to think about like what, you know, what the, um, you know, climate forward stimulus package is that Mitch McConnell will like give a vote on the floor of the Senate. And if he did, like which, which two Republicans or which one Republican, whoever would, would flip over to, to support it. Um, and I think that creates real, I mean, midterm elections are historically backlash elections that you can count on one hand, really uh, less than one hand, the number of times in, in American history in which the incumbent party, uh, party that holds the white house hasn't lost seats in both chambers during a midterm. So like the friendliness of the map to us may not matter as much as we think it does. Um, and I think if, you know, Mitch McConnell's goal is to sabotage the Biden administration's, you know, entire agenda through his control of the Senate. Um, I don't think Democrats have yet to show themselves to be very good at winning messaging wars on things like that. Um, if they did, we probably wouldn't have Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Um, and I don't think, um, and I do think actually, if, if that's the path they go down and we lose that messaging war, um, it creates all kinds of problems for us in the midterm, in which like actually maybe the House is back in play for Republicans, the Senate becomes like keepable for them. And it just sets up the administration for all kinds. I mean, I think this like split decision sets them up for all kinds of challenges that um, at least in, in like my knowledge of what's been gamed out on the left and even the central left for like potential like trajectories for the Biden administration haven't been given a ton of attention. If being given attention now, everyone's panicking, trying to figure out what to do. Um, but I, I think the expectation, right, was that like either Democrats would take the Senate in the White House or Republicans would take the Senate in the White House. And winding up in this kind of um, split territory just makes you know the idea of pursuing any agenda on the Biden side really complicated, especially a legislative one. Well, Billy, I really appreciate you making some time today to and thank you for taking us into that. I mean, these are the conversations that people are going to be having for the for the coming weeks. And thanks again for sharing your experience with COVID-19. Uh, I guess, are you suiting up in the in the dinosaur suit now and heading out? Uh, I thought about it. It's like dark and I'm pretty tired from yesterday. So I may sit tonight out and let other folks like do their thing down there. But uh, I may try and join them tomorrow if they're still rocking. Well, it's great to see you and it's great to see you doing well. And we'll be in contact after this. And, and uh, thanks for all you do. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the rest see of your you. night. See you, Billy.
Okay, um, I'm going to turn to the second part of my conversation today, and it was great to talk to Billy Fleming. Let me introduce three new guests, and um, Sherelle Barber is Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health. Dr. Barber's empirical work and academic commentary has been published in leading academic journals, including the Lancet Infectious Disease, the American Journal of Public Health and Social Science and Medicine. She's been a guest previously on COVID calls, and you can check out her episode. I'll tweet out a link to that after the call tonight. It was a wonderful conversation we had few weeks back. Let me also introduce you to Cynthia Rivas. Uh, Cynthia holds a Bachelor's of Science and a Master's of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Planning from University of California, Berkeley. She did PhD work at the University of Delaware in Disaster Science and Management at the Tremendous Disaster Research Center there, which everybody's gotten to know a little bit in COVID calls. And she's currently the Geospatial Information Science Expert at the National Institute of Standards and technology, and let me introduce also Olivia Troy, who has previously been a guest on COVID calls. Olivia is a risk management and national security executive, most recently serving as the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Pence at the White House, where she focused on tracking imminent and evolving domestic and international security threats, natural disaster events, and managing complex policy decisions and responses to large-scale crises. She's fluent in Spanish and hails from El Paso, Texas. She's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania National Defense University's College of International Security Affairs and the Naval Postgraduate School. Cynthia, Sherelle, Olivia, thank you all for making time to come on COVID calls, uh, for a couple of you to come back on COVID calls and talk a little bit about the election. How are y'all doing? Doing okay. As good as we can be right now, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm tired. <laughs> Have you slept, That's Olivia? No. No. I keep trying, but but no, I feel like I'm that gif of that baby that, you know, kind of starts to nod off a little bit, nod off a little bit, and then wakes up and like starts reading the paper again and watches the TV. That's me. Because I'm like, did I miss something? Did I miss it? What happened? But yeah. Just praying. I've been the same. I the last two nights I've fallen asleep with a laptop on my chest. I mean, it's just like precarious positions where I'm like, I'm just going to rest for a minute. And you sort of got the laptop and then, it, you know, um, but to no avail. But I think maybe tonight we're going to find out a little bit more. I'm so glad to see the three of you. And I think I want to just um, take a take a, uh, a round and just ask you sort of individually to talk a little bit about what this election has meant to you, and particularly in the context of going through this year with the pandemic. Cynthia, can I start with you, please? Sure. Um, so this election just, um, you know, it, you, we were all expecting it to be significant because of 2016 and how it actually went. But I think this pandemic, for me, made this election you know, extremely important because earlier this year, um, my dad passed away because of COVID and my sisters caught it. My mom caught it. Like so many members of my family uh, caught COVID and thankfully they all survived except for, unfortunately for my dad, right? So that happened in March, which feels like it was years ago. Um, but this election meant like I had to do something, right? Like it wasn't that I'm not active 
in my normal day-to-day -day life, you know, before all of this, but this election me meant so much more because there's 230 plus thousand people that died, right? And a lot of it, especially depending on the state, like I'm originally from California, that is where my family is based out of. And in California where my dad passed away, 39% of the population is Latinx, right? And however, 49 to 50% of all COVID deaths are of Latinos, right? And Latinas. So like that, that makes a huge impact, right? Because these people are dying of a virus that, you know, the administration knew ahead of time, but was didn't handle anything, right? Correctly. And so many people are now paying with their lives. And all these people are from much more like vulnerable populations and underserved populations that are already suffering and going through systemic racism. And now they have to deal with an extra layer of just barriers to, you know, just to overcome this, like, and survive this. And then after you survive this, you, you then have to get up and continue to work because the system we have does not support you staying at home and fully recovering, right? Like if you are an essential worker and a lot of the reason why a lot of the numbers show that Latinx and black communities are dying is because they are the essential workers. They are the construction workers. They're the, you know, they're the security guards. They are the farm workers. They are the nurses. They are the doctors. They are the teachers who are catching these viruses at higher rates than the white population, right? And they do not have the disposal income to stay at home, you know, and quarantine the right amount of time or stay at home and fully recover. They have to before, you know, they feel forced to go out there and then, and, you know, produce an income because they will lose their house. They will lose the car, right? Like the, there's a lot of issues there. And this election was a perfect example of how everything is interconnected and intertwined, right? our racial system, the racial injustices, and the social issues that we have are tied together to the health issues that we all face day to day, right? And to me, this election was the culmination of all of the, everything that these communities have been saying and trying to get, you know, the people in power to change and help. And it, it just, you know, now we have this perfect example we've been saying it before like we need help we need a better system and this covid 19 experience and pandemic has just demonstrated to everybody that everything that these communities have been saying has been true right and that we are disproportionately experiencing these high numbers of covid exposures and deaths because of these this horrible system that we have allowed to continue in this country. So it, it you know, to me, I literally, you know, took my ballot to a, a drop off box because I didn't trust the system, right? We didn't, the USPS was potentially being taken down. And so when I, you know, went and did it, I, I fell on my dad's birthday and I did it to honor him and everybody else that is welcome. You know? Um, thank you for thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing 
that um, you. It's okay if you don't want to, but do you want to tell us a little bit about your about your dad? Oh sure. Um, <laughs> my dad was, I think, a great person. He he had just turned sixty. Did not even have a single gray hair. He was very proud of that. So I feel like I. I have to let you know. <laughs> and he worked every single day. Like he literally worked until the day he was hospitalized. And he and now now my mother, you know, she she and my dad both came to this country as immigrants. They both worked at sweatshops, you know, earning pennies. People don't realize this, but your clothing gets paid usually by uh, sections that get sewn. So they used to get paid like two or three cents to make pockets on shirts. And that's how they made a living for their entire life, basically. And now my sisters and I, I, you know, I come from, it was six of us. I have three sisters. Two of them caught COVID at the same time as my dad, because they both live in California and they have close relationships with my dad. So they would visit him every weekend. So when he got it and my mother got it, both of my sisters got it. And you know, it was devastating because my other sister and I do not live in the state of California. So we had to everything, we had to do everything over the phone. Like it is horrid to not be able to do things you want to do, like fly out there and help out because there's a pandemic going on, right? And, mm, and there was nothing we could do for my dad. Like he literally was in the hospital for two weeks. And I would like to point out that he basically got sick before California put a stay at home order, right? And California was one of the first states to do that. And he got sick before that. And he was hospitalized for two and a half weeks. And then he passed away. He did not get diagnosed with COVID until after he was intubated officially because of the testing. It was, it was just not happening, happening quick enough in California. And there weren't enough tests in the area he was at because the area that he's at is in a rich area, right? If you have money, you can get a test then. But he didn't. And he was just one of the many thousands of people that had to wait to get tested but at that time he was already at the hospital and he was already intubated like and you know like all i can do now is um you know just try to do the best i can and hope that our election results come in and are a little better than than what we have now right like so Sherelle, let me bring you in. Th Cynthia, thank you so much for for sharing that. Um, Sherelle, I guess I just want—I kind of want to get your your sense of what this election meant to you. And you know, we talked. We had a great discussion a little while back about how this election season and how Black Lives Matter and how the pandemic were sort of inseparable disasters uh, I learned a lot in that discussion I don't know what is what's it what's it felt like for you this week yeah well I want to first begin by saying Cynthia thank you so much for sharing your story my heart goes out to you and your family because um, as a social epidemiologist who studies how racism affects has affected COVID-19 for blacks and other marginalized racial groups 
you know, hearing these stories is just heartbreaking um, because we know it is the systems and the structures that have caused the kind, the level of suffering and pain that we're um, we're experiencing. Um, and we also know it's the recklessness of this administration, uh, the sheer disregard for life. Um, their, uh, um, this administration and Trump's ability to uh, literally uh, take a, a pandemic, a global pandemic, and turn it into a tragedy um, where public health experts, uh, um, scientists are all just decrying the way he's handled this, the, this, this, this pandemic. And so um, for me, I think it's a couple of things that are coming to bear. One, um, um, as a Black woman born and raised in the South, right, um, coming out of the tradition of so many powerful Black women um, who fought for the right to vote, who shed tears, uh, shed blood, were even, you know, killed, um, you know, for the right to vote. Part of my, you know, um, 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 uh, responsibility is to hold uphold that legacy, right? And so, um, you know, in this week um, and in this morning, actually seeing um, what has happened in Georgia, uh, where we uh, were able to um, flip that state that was seen as reliably red um, um, to something that's blue because of folks like Stacey Abrams, another black woman who has had just a powerful influence along with other organizers in that state. I think it's it's been, um, for me, um, just been so proud to be a black woman, to be honest, um, because black women, um, you know, since the inception of this country and, and, and especially uh, once uh, we gained the right uh, to vote have been the conscience of this nation. 90% of black women voted against this administration because we recognized um, the consequences of this, uh, of, of having four more years of Trump um, would fall heavily on us and heavily on our communities. Um, and we we showed up and showed out in order to um, to bring this country back from the brink, if you will, right? Um, it's also, and so literally voting was a matter of life and death uh, for so many of us. In addition, we've had to bear witness to the tragic um, and just unimaginable murders of Breonna Taylor, of George Floyd, of Maude Arbery, um, of now Walter Wallace in West Philadelphia over the course of these last um, few months in the middle of a pandemic that's wreaking havoc on Black communities. Again, we we have to bear witness to that. We we are traumatized by that. And so again, this election was a vote against, you know, uh, against that that racism and that white supremacy. But I will say that as much as I am proud and I do think that we're going to, you know, um, be victorious in this election, it is still heartbreaking to know that close to 70 million people witnessing the sheer disregard for life, witnessing racism and white supremacy come out, the, out of the highest office in this land, witnessing the ways in which Blacks and Latinos and other marginalized groups have been treated, talked about, um, and how this um, Trump has incited, vi incited violence. You know, it is disheartening <laughs> as a Black woman to witness that, yes, we're going to come out, but it's been this close of an election, right? It's given all that we've seen, not only in this year, but so so much prior to that. And so we're going to rejoice in this moment, but there's still so much work to be done to dismantle these systems, the, dismantle these structures that continue uh, to, to uh, cause us harm, to cause us suffering, and to cause us death in our communities. Sure. Let me just follow up on that point, because I'm just reread something. This was in the New York Times yesterday. It said, um, this is one of the stories about the exit polls. I've got a lot of problems with these exit polls, but it said, as important as it was to them 
Only about one in five voters considered the virus the top issue affecting their vote. More said the economy was, and a similar share said racial inequality decided their ballot. So that means most people, despite this year, still didn't rank racial inequality or the coronavirus among their deciding factors. The economy was somehow deciding. Now, I don't, again, I don't think they're inseparable. Right. But does that surprise you? No, it doesn't, unfortunately. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the things, you know, 2020 has, 2020 has just bought, given us 2020 vision um, and really shown us who we are. What I hope, though, that there are enough of us um, who are willing to fight, you know, and willing to hold this, not only this administration, because I just also just want to say that not just this administration, but this country accountable um, in this moment. Um, and, I, and I think that this election um, allows us the terrain to do that fighting. I think if, if Trump had would have prevailed, it would have been so much more difficult to do that accounting. But because we have, you know, um, um, hopefully this new administration, there is a, a better chance of pushing us forward, of holding this country accountable, of really dealing with these deep-seated issues that are literally um, have, are embedded in the very foundation of this country. And so, so yeah, I'm not surprised, but I, I, you know, I, what I am hopeful in is, again, the folks who are willing to fight and sacrifice for this country to make it a better democracy. Olivia Troy, it's good to see you again. And let me bring you into this discussion. Up until August, you were working in the Coronavirus Task Force, and then you came out and publicly, um, you really put yourself out there and got involved in this in this election and said some things that the administration really disliked about the mismanagement of the pandemic. What's this week been like for you? Yeah, it's been, it's been sobering in many ways. I think, you know, I had, I came into the election with eyes wide open. I have watched the Trump misinformation machine um, work very, uh, very well, unfortunately. And I think just watching the election results come in as much as I wanted to be surprised and I wanted to say, no, we're not as divided as the ballots that are coming and are telling me. Um, the fact is, I do think that in many ways, we, we are losing the battle against the Trump misinformation campaign because they're very good at it. They're really good at pitting us against each other they're really good at encouraging violence. They're, that is what they do. It's, it's, it's appalling to say that, to be honest, but they've done it on almost every issue, whether it was a national security foreign adversary issue, whether it's COVID, uh, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's you know the protests this summer with Black Lives Matter, that's what they do. They take an issue, they flip it on its head, and for some reason, these Trump supporters just continue to be all in. And that to me is scary. Because because going forward, I'm while I'm praying and I'm hopeful that Biden will win. I think it's looking good for us. Thank goodness for the sake of the country. I am worried about what this says going forward because just because Trump goes away, so to speak, or is not the president, these forces are still going to be out there. And I think it's that is my main concern right now is just how are we going to counter them? And I do think, um, like Dr. Barber said, I think it's going to take all of us to unify against that and we're not I, I think it's important that we don't take the bait and that we unify and support each other and I think it's incredible I mean I think she's right I think 
thank God for the black women's vote and their leadership, especially down in Georgia. Thank God for that. And I, you know, I've got to say, I'm I'm half I'm, I'm Mexican American. I'm half Mexican. Pretty disappointed on the way Latinos voted in this election. They still a lot of them voted for Trump, and I I personally find that appalling. I don't understand, especially with his immigration policies and everything that we've seen at the border. But I also understand that, you know, we're a complicated community, I'll say that. And, you know, I think the Cuban vote in Florida is strong. They don't see themselves the same as the rest of us. It's a very complicated sort of dynamic. And I guess I'm just hoping that, you know, in the coming months, and especially right now, for the next, think about it, we're not going to have real leadership at the helm until hopefully when Joe Biden wins, he is inaugurated and, you know, sworn into office. We are navigating on our own for the next couple of months on this pandemic. It's really up to all of us. There's really no one. There's no captain of the ship right now. Right. Thank God for Dr. Fauci out there on on media and others who are speaking out. And, and you know, we've got medical practitioners and hospital people, everyone talking, talking about this pandemic. But the truth is, there's nobody steering it from the federal government. They've sort of just given up. They've thrown their hands up. And quite frankly, they don't care. This is the least of their problems. They're going to spend the next two months probably doing lawsuits and focused more on the courts and trying to, you know, keep Donald Trump in power than fighting the virus that's continuing to kill people and hurt us. So I think that to me is what where we are in terms of, you know, the situation with this administration. But I'm just grateful that there's so many allies out there that are are sort of understanding this and kind of coming together right now, because this is a time that we're going to need to do that. Olivia, let me just stay with that for a second. Since you served in government under many different administrations, Republican and Democrat, and what you've just said about the next two months, frankly, it sends a chill down my spine. Because my hope has been that without Trump actively trying to use COVID-19 as a wedge issue, that maybe the people who are left in government, like Dr. Fauci and many others in the CDC and across the government who get up, go and do their jobs, that they can maybe do their jobs in these next couple of months. But what you're saying doesn't square with what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm actually, I'm very worried uh, that they will start to clean house soon enough. And that is actually my greatest concern right now. And I hope that, I think Dr. Fauci is fairly untouchable just because of his tenure in government. But you know, those, those executive orders that they did, they purposely targeted uh, the federal government. I can tell you, there's numerous senior FBI people who have dedicated their life to serving at the FBI, FBI while watching this, who actually work on issues of hate crimes and white supremacy, who are really nervous about their jobs in the next month and what's about to happen. And that's, you know, that's an intimidation tactic they've done. And so I'm going to be watching closely, but, you know, I, I don't know how many people we're going to see kind of pay the price in the next month or so. But I think that we'll just have to be grateful for, honestly, the media and getting them out there publicly. And I would say to the public, listen to that rather than tune into the White House, because there's going to be no tuning in. I don't expect them to change their messaging on it. They're going to be too focused on, one, trying to keep him there. Or honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if half of them are focused on how they're going to get him out of there. Because I think, you know, I've heard from some people that they're not sure he's going to leave and they're trying to figure out how they're going to navigate that. 
I didn't invite you on today necessarily to make me feel better, Olivia, but you're definitely not. Um, and I'm glad, though, that, I mean, thank you for not sugarcoating it. I mean, I, that does seem like what we're up against. Um, I wonder just, though, and then I want to I want to introduce with two guests who, who just joined. It, you have been through, you've seen presidential transitions before. Is it possible that an aggressive Biden elect administration can actually from the outside at least on the science communication front make some change i do i do think that i think that the transition team right now uh i think you know it's my understanding that they're getting briefings on the pandemic is what i've heard and i think that that's critical and important and i think that i think once we can call the election hopefully um, they can start to focus on that and they can start messaging that. And I'm hoping that that message will carry forward. But like I said, that misinformation campaign out there is going to be heavily weighing on that. And that's why I'm looking forward to hopefully January when we do someone have, have someone in the, in the actual Oval Office with the platform of the presidency behind them, hoping to set the tone and the leadership that needs to be set in terms of this pandemic. So let me bring uh, two more guests in and briefly introduce them. Both of them have been on COVID calls before. Fiona Tulip is from Texas, from Brownsville, and lives in Brooklyn. She received a degree from University of Texas and Parsons School of Design and has worked as a communications and PR uh, professional. She joined uh, Marked by COVID within days of her mother, Isabel Papadimitriou's passing on July 4th. And let me also introduce Kristen Arquiza co-founder and chief activist of Marked by COVID. Kristen's a graduate of Yale University and UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, where she has a master's of public affairs, and she's an environmental advocate at Mighty Earth. It's great to see you both, Fiona and Kristen. Welcome back to COVID Calls. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Good to see so you let again. Me, Fiona, let me uh, start with you. We've just been talking today about what this election means to people um, and what it's been like to go through this week after the year that you've been through. Fiona, let me ask you first. Uh, this week has been, uh, it, it feels like years. It's been a never ending week. I haven't been able to sleep. I was up um, at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 5 a.m. last night, and I have a one-year-old, so <laughs> it's not the easiest, you know, days for me. Um, it's, it, this election has been so important for me because since my mom died, I have been on a crusade to get justice for her, and the first order of business was fire Trump. So, I've been putting a lot of work into that and really trying to get the message out about how his lies have truly sabotaged the efforts to contain the virus. And it's been hard. You know, it, it's interesting to, to hear Olivia talk because it's true. You know, they've taken every issue and turned them on his head and, and convinced their, his supporters that, you know, what he says is true. So it has felt like an uphill battle and it's been exhausting. All last week, I, I feel like I just slept all day and um, just because I'm tired, you know, it, it's, it's, I've been shouting, screaming, stomping my feet, trying to help people understand that he is incompetent, he is unfit for office and that we need to get rid of him. Um, so 
a lot of that is, you know, getting justice for my mom. My mom did not deserve to die. Her death was a preventable death. She should still be here. And it was because of his gross mismanagement that she isn't. So I, w- I want him out. And, and it's it's frustrating to have to go through this week. And it's like, when is it going to end? Like it, this nightmare just needs to be over. And he is stretching it out for as long as he can. And it's it's hard. It's really hard for me. I guess also this this week, and then this is what you know we've been talking about today, and Cynthia mentioned this a little bit too. It, it sort of brings back the whole year, but in a condent like all at once. I mean, having to sort of go back through these emotions in the midst of this these last few days, I can only imagine how taxing that is for you. It, it is. It's it's honestly it's hard to get out of bed, um, but I'm not sleeping. You know, it's. It's just, it's hard to do anything. I, I keep having to force myself to to eat, um, to to stop, maybe stop watching the news for a little bit, to stop t- checking Twitter. It's, um, it, it's emotionally draining and exhausting. And since my mom died on July 4th, I haven't found many tears and it, it's bothered me because I, I want to cry about my mom, but I've been on such a, a mission, you know, to, 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 make sure that she didn't die in vain. And so I've been very focused and, you know, this week it has brought some tears because I'm just, I'm reliving everything and it, it's, it's awful. You know, it's, it's a, it was a really horrible feeling. Kristen, good to see you. Can I bring you in on this as well? Same question. I mean, you've been leading a movement now for months and now this is a turning point in that movement. I, I know it's not the end of it. In some ways, it must be a beginning. But how have these last 48, 72 hours been for you? Um, it's been a roller coaster. I think going into, you know, from Tuesday night, to Wednesday, um, like many people have been impacted by COVID. Um, we wanted the moral victory as well as the political victory. And seeing so many people vote for uh, the president was hard to swallow. But then as we've started this, you know, campaign to make sure that every vote is counted because every vote counts, um, my hopes have actually started to to grow. Um, and I'm actually feeling pretty good right now, just not only about the political win, which seems to be on the horizon, but to see how sustained organizing in particular in places like Georgia, um, underneath the leadership of Stacey Abrams and a a million other on the ground grassroots groups. And then here in Arizona, where I was, where I worked really closely with a number of Latino groups. um, And we actually had a a 73 to 25 spread on the Latino vote. So 73% of the Latino vote here in Arizona voted for Joe Biden. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful in the sense that I think something that this group of women would agree with is that when we invest in um, women of color and people of color leaders and sustained engagement, we can really change the power dynamics. Um, And I feel like we have a few models that could really be learned from um, and run with for helping to unite and build back better. And so while I want this chapter to be over and fine sealed delivered, 
I'm actually starting to get a little excited about what we can learn from this and how we can better position ourselves to not end up in this situation again. Just Both as, and, and, and disease wise. Yeah, well, let me just stay with that, Kristen. Um, so a new administration probably is coming. Um, and I'd asked you this previously when we talked before, but now it's it seems more more real. What are you looking for in that next administration? First of all, on the pandemic, mm-hmm. and, and I think related to that, justice for victims of the pandemic. Yeah. So, I mean, there is an urgent response needed um, of that coordinated national data-driven plan that we've talked about. Um, but, you know, in looking at the COVID response plan that the Biden administration has available, it's great. There's a, many pieces in there that need to should have been implemented months ago. But I'm excited about going beyond that. And so uh, Fiona and I were actually just talking last night about this vision of a 5R plan, which is not only response, but also recovery, resiliency, recognition, and restitution. So that final piece kind of gets at the question that you were posing and that we need to look at other models of reparations to ensure that the families who have been most impacted that they're made whole or there's an attempt to made whole. And I think that's important, not only from um, a justice perspective, but I think it's also important to have accountability mechanisms because whenever you have to pay for something that you did poorly, you're more likely not to have to do that again. Fines work. (laughs) Um, And so I am excited to work with Fiona and others to fully create a policy agenda that is commensurate with the crisis. And with, you know, over 230 people lost, 10 million people impacted, this is, this is going to have to be big. Um, And um, yeah, I'm not afraid to be able (laughs) <laughs> to be a little audacious about that. I think that's kind of part of my character. Sorrell, <laughs> let me bring you back in on this because this this issue of restitution, I mean, it connects directly with the sort of, and again, as we've been talking about, the many disasters that have come together this year. Is an economic stimulus package part, it's certainly not enough. Is that part of it? How do we, I mean, I think Kristen's putting forward some ideas about how we can go forward in this moment of organizing and not let it pass and just say, oh, well, we're glad we made it through that, but actually see it as a moment to go forward and, and have greater ambitions for justice and restitution, which is a, a powerful word that Kristen's using. Yeah, no, think, yeah. So I think it's uh, definitely, you know, along those lines. Um, and one of the things that I have been fortunate and um, really privileged to do is work alongside the Poor People's Campaign over the last uh, few months as their Health Justice Advisory uh, Committee Coordinator. And one of the things I like about the Poor People's Campaign is they have a full Jubilee platform that they were putting together before the crisis, but the crisis basically has made it so that really can't really ignore it, right? And so this is a, a 
talking about healthcare for all, free healthcare for all, because it, it is a crime uh, that there are some who do just don't have basic access to healthcare. They're talking about minimum, uh, having living wage jobs, um, having making sure that workers have rights, because as uh, Cynthia mentioned earlier and others have mentioned, it's been the workers who have literally been the lifeline during this pandemic, but they have been the most deemed the most disposable um, in this pandemic. And we need to do right by workers, giving them paid sick leave and, and, and health insurance and, and the kinds of things that they deserve because they literally kept this economy afloat um, when, when, when others, um, others couldn't. Um, they're also, we're also looking at um, this platform also deals with issues of militarism and racial justice and thinking about how we address this, you know, um, um, vicious system of mass incarceration within this country. We've got to do all those things because this pandemic has brought to light and laid bare all of these interlocking systems and structures and stuff. So we need to be bold in what we request. We need to, because the, the harms that have been done um, since the inception of this country are deep. They're deep wounds. And the response needs to match the depth of the wounds that have just been exposed during this pandemic. And so I would encourage folks to look at that platform because I think it's powerful. It also, I'll, I'll bring out, it also talks about climate justice and really making sure that we address this climate crisis because this pandemic is one thing, but the climate the, the, the climate crisis that is here for so many need, has to be addressed head on. And we have to be, uh, you know, um, 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 really concerned concerned about this because, again, this is going to disproportionately impact Black, Brown, poor communities. And so, you know, I, I, it is my hope uh, that once we get past this election, uh, that more and more folks align with these social movements, Poor People's Campaign, Black Lives Matter, other movements who have the blueprint. They have the blueprint. We just got to get behind them um, and really challenge not only, again, it's not just the Trump administration, but elected officials across the board, local, state, and federal level, in order to repair the harms, bring true healing, because that's what we need. You know, I, I have sat here and listened to Cynthia and Kristen and Fiona. I have followed the deaths of, you know, Black communities and other marginalized racial groups. It has been heartbreaking. And um, I think this election is a first step in repairing that, but we have so much work to do. Um, and, I, and I'm just delighted to have been on the, in this space with you all. And I want to send each of you so much light and so much love because I can only imagine what it's been like over the past uh, few months uh, to have been directly impacted by this pandemic. So, but there's work to do and, and there's people that ready to do it. And so that's what we need to lean into in this moment. We're going to say goodbye to Olivia, and if the others of you can hang out for just another minute or two, that's that's great. If you have to go, I understand. Um, but Olivia, just to say goodbye to you, thank you for your time today. Thank you for your courage this year in an election where uh, it's been decided by a very small number of votes in some important states. I can't help but think that people who were in that administration and came out and spoke out about what was really happening, that that didn't make a difference. So thanks, thanks for that, and thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's um, amazing to be on here with this group of women. Um, so I'm just really proud of you. Um, I'm, I admire you, all of you and all the work that you've been doing. And um, just stay strong. And there'll be, you know, I think there's a whole group of us out there that is going to hang on we'll to talk, each other and, and hold We'll talk together. to you soon, I hope. So.
Cynthia, let me bring you back in on on this. Um, and to any anything you've heard uh, that you want to react to, and then one other thing I just want to bring into the mix is as a I mean you're a disaster researcher. I mean you're an expert in the way that disasters play out. And I'm worried, and I wonder how worried you are that there is always this rush to closure, even sometimes without even taking the time to really investigate fully what even happened. And I mean we're. We're not anywhere near done with this pandemic, and I already hear people using the past tense a lot, which is insane considering that we're setting records for infection rate. I, I guess I, anything you want to react to or, or pick that issue up? I think, um, you know, we are like just, I think it, just people want to put things in their past in general. Like, you know, I think in general, the public just wants to be over with it because they're over it but the pandemic isn't over, right? And I think even in disaster research, we talk a lot about long-term recovery and long-term, you know, all this long-term talk, but we really don't fund true long-term studies, right? Long-term, like long-term research to actually see how disasters affect people generationally too, right? Like the just because we are surviving this pandemic does not mean that you know, our children, our grandchildren are not going to feel the impact of this, right? Because this pandemic has been a very hard pandemic, like all pandemics are, obviously. But we had a really bad administration handle a really horrible, horribly, right? Like handle it really horribly. And so we have to, I think, even in our research discipline, start really thinking about what and how we're gonna do true long-term studies and research, although that doesn't get funded usually, right? Like we are very much about the quick now research and can we publish this and can we produce this, right? And then we move on to the next big thing. And that's a huge problem because a lot of the time what happens is people just go in there, they, you know, do what they need to do and leave and they, you know, they take the knowledge and that's it. But what they don't realize is, first of all, there's multiple types of people and communities that were affected by these disasters that were affected at different levels, right? At different variations of it. And they too need to be studied because they deserve to know what went wrong and how to prevent it. But then we also need to make sure our research becomes accessible because what academia and even research government in, government research institutes do is we write things up, we put them behind paywalls, we make it impossible, and sometimes we make it impossible to find when they're public documents. And then we say, but we did our part. You should have known better when we didn't make that accessible. We also write in a very, in a way to keep people out, right? We in academia love to use big words, come up with new terms and phrases. And that is a way to safeguard and gatekeep academia and research away from the public who would benefit from our research, research that usually gets funded by taxpayers, right? And so my concern looking at COVID is that we are just going to try to sweep this under the rug. People are going to talk about all the public health issues and there'll be something written about the racial disparities and the minorities and then we'll be done, right? But the fact of the matter is that COVID has affected people so horribly 
that we, you know, that they're, they're going to be feeling the repercussions for the rest of their lives. And they could potentially be passed down to future generations, right? Because we don't know the extent how this virus works all the way, right? We are still yeah. discovering how it is mutating. Like there literally just was an article about the mutation of this virus, right? And these are things that I think we really actually researchers or just as people in this realm that have connections we need to start thinking about that and just make way also because i think the same issue the public has academia has we are a very you know extremely white research-based communities and we like to tie everything up in a little boat and that is not how disasters work disasters are complicated disasters keep going even when you are done with the disaster right these repercussions are felt for years and decades and generations and so that's what i i think about you know and and to kristen's point about restitutions i think she's correct we need that there's so many people that passed away that were the main breadwinners of their families to begin with you know or you know, they had value right and now they're gone and a lot of them went into debt. A lot of them, you know, like their families had to go into debt. What we don't even talk about now is that in order to handle a COVID death, the way the funeral system works is you get upcharged than the regular death, right? Like when my father passed away, we got charged extra for them to go pick up my dad in a specialized car, they said, and for them to have their, you know, their employees wearing PPE while they were handling my dad's body, right? And they charged us even more just to take my dad from the morgue and then put him in in the ground, right? And we didn't get to see him. They were, you know, they were like, we're not gonna be a closed casket. We're not gonna open the casket for you. You know, and that and those are and there everything was an upcharge, you know, like these are things that people don't like to talk about or think about, but these are things that affect people who have someone that has died of COVID and then people who have survived COVID. I know people that literally have lung damage because of COVID and who is going to help these people out because they no longer can work, right? And they now have a, a condition that if they were to apply for insurance, they will be denied insurance, right? right. right. And so we need to think about how we're going to handle the people that have survived COVID themselves and how we're going to help the people who have lost someone and need help, financial help, mental health help, now that their loved one is gone, right? We're almost up on time. Thank you for that, Cynthia. I want to give each of my guests a chance with this around just to come back and give everybody a chance to to share any additional thoughts they they have fiona let me bring you in first because and i think just reacting to what cynthia said um one thing that works to keep academics focused in my experience is making common cause with activists sometimes the academy is a little allergic to that but i think in moments of profound social change, we find that academics can make very powerful common cause um, with people who have suffered. And I guess I, I, one thing I would say is I hope marked by COVID will hold the academy 
to account too. I mean, I think researchers have a responsibilities right now that they need to live up to. Um, but you may not want to react to that. That's just reaction to what Cynthia said. Let me bring you back in and anything you're thinking right now. Yeah, no, I, I really do appreciate everything Cynthia said and, and Dr. Sherelle. And I, I feel like, um, you know, we're, we're on the same page. And I, I, when we first talked to you, I'm talking about how devastated I am, but the week, but I, I do have hope as well. You know, I, 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 I am hurt by the amount of people who supported another four more years with Trump, but it, it just means we have to look harder. Um, there was this quote that I read the other day. Um, when you lose, you find strength and fight harder. When you win, the ugliness arises and you have to fight harder to keep winning. And that's really resonated with me because I do believe we will win, the Biden will win, and that it only means we're going to need to fight harder. And so we're going to need to find a unified approach. We're going to need to find a way to connect with Trump supporters and people who are so far into this disbelief of science. Um, but I am ready. I feel energized because we are going to have a leader who will support our cause and support our message. So I, I just hope that that allows us to be louder and stronger together. And with a, a team like Mark by COVID and with Kristen at the helm, it, it just, it makes me feel better about what we're walking into. So thank you, Scott. So I am, um, I, I, I too am hopeful and my hope lies in the people um, and, and, and the people who have shown up and the people who will continue the struggle. Um, I was inspired listening to one of the council uh, women from Philadelphia last night on the streets and, and, and how she was talking about the power lies in the people, the, the power is here in the streets. And, and I think that we need to be listening to those again, that have been most directly impacted to these institutions, by these institutions, these structures, by racism, by white supremacy, um, because, because, um, there's so much power there. And I, I, I do feel like it's being unleashed and it'll continue to be unleashed in, in, in the coming weeks. So I'm just, that's where my hope lies is in is in the, is in the people and uh, really pushing this country forward, um, helping it to be better, um, better um, or live up to its ideals and and better than um, better than it, and it has been. So, so hopefully we're going to get a um, some sort of call on this election if, tonight, Kristen. If not tonight, then tomorrow. And if it goes the way I'm hoping, um, there'll be at least some sort of refutation of what we've been through that's correct. not nearly enough not nearly enough but i think you know kind of piggybacking on this theme of unity and the people i really do see this as a moment of democracy rising we um have been reminded that democracy is not a sideline sport it works better when we participate and what I've seen over the course of the last several months that I've been super active in this space is a willingness for people to sacrifice, um, push their own boundaries for the greater good and um, a, a sort of, you know, democracy that's never really existed. Um, you know, as, as we've heard on this call tonight, you know, we have 
we are built on 400 years of free labor on stolen land. There is a lot of work to do to make things right. But given the moment we're in and how, you know, I just, I woke up this morning with goosebumps thinking that children across the country will look up to a black woman who will be coveted, who armed soldiers will bow to, who will preside over the Senate. It's a good day to be an American. I think that is the right place to leave this conversation. Kristen Arquiza, Cynthia Rivas, Yana Tulip, Sherelle Barber, and let me also thank Olivia Troy and Billy Fleming who was on earlier. You all answered uh, today without hesitation to come on and share your experiences of this week. I have incredible uh, admiration for your strength and your wisdom and uh, good luck to all of us. And let's all keep in contact. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. You can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. And we will be right back on Monday with more COVID calls. Thanks, everybody. Stay healthy. Thank See you, you all Monday, 5 o'clock.